0: Hello and welcome to the World Music Podcast. I'm your host, Will Marsh. Today I'm excited to share my interview with Steve Gorn. Steve is a celebrated flutist and Hindustani Bansuri player who has been featured on uh, Grammy-winning records and worked with a wide array of artists, such as Paul Simon, Glenn Velez, Jack Dejanet, Paul Winter, Krishna Das, Richie Havens and many more and I'd like to acknowledge Steve as really being one of the earlier musicians from the West to uh, study deeply in the Hindustani tradition and continue to uh, perform and and share that music in the West in this interview Steve shares his uh, amazing insight and perspective on life and music this interview was originally recorded on September 30th, 2020. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled and honored to have Steve Gorn as my musical guest today. And Steve, where are you tuning in from today?
1: I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York, um, Rosendale, New York, just um, a minute from Woodstock. That's a reference point that... That people usually know. Um, green, lush, fall colors all around. Um, quite something.
0: I'd like to begin by just asking, you know, what, what were your earliest music memories? And was it a part of your household growing up? And where did that spark for music start?
1: The spark for music just came from the beginning. My dad was a concert pianist, Um, I grew up in a household that was um, really drenched in Western classical music. I I can instantly hear Brahms symphonies in my ear, my father's piano playing while I was um, just a kid building erector set models under a grand piano. So um, it's always been there. I would say that in middle school, um, I'd taken up clarinet and I quickly got on to saxophone and, uh, and really took a dive into the um, jazz of the um, late 50s and early 60s. So this is um, really the post-bebop era where um, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, uh, these were my musical heroes. And I really, um, I I was totally immersed in that music through high school, through college. And it was while I was in college, and actually it was around that time that um, John Coltrane and Youssef Latif and Charles Lloyd, who I had some personal interactions with, all became um, fascinated with what was going on with Indian music. Not only Indian music, but world music in general. There was a movement in not the full jazz scene, but among many jazz musicians to embrace the um, melodic structures of Indian music, the uh, rhythmic structures of Indian and African, uh, the modal structures of Middle Eastern music. And this was really beginning to be the ground. Of an exploration that I just um, went for, I just followed it, and it led me to India in 1969. Um, backpack hippie, clueless, but how, how old were you? Twenty-five. Hmm. Wow. Twenty-five. Yeah, and uh, and that journey just opened up a path for me. I. Um, Stumbled around, as so many people did, studying casually, one teacher and then another. And even um, initially, I I wanted to play the shanai, which is the double reed, um, kind of wild oboe of India, um, largely because Coltrane had really been fascinated with shanai music, it being a horn. And um, I, I suspect that was really one of his main influences on what he began to do, Modally, particularly with the soprano saxophone but but over a, um, a couple the course of a couple of months and some traveling around, I began to work with the Basri bamboo flute, and that became my instrument and through a series of um, happenstance, total accidents and bizarre circumstances, which I think anyone who spent some time in India knows that um, the unexpected is often. Where the magic is, uh, I found myself in Calcutta and was led to a, um, a a guru, a master of the bansuri, a pandit Gurugraswami, Swami who was a disciple of uh, Panalal Ghosh, who um, in the Indian music world was the he was the man who took the bamboo flute, which was really the small folk flute associated with the mythology of Krishna, used in folk music, used to accompany dance. But Panala Gosha, um, coming from um, what's now Bangladesh, uh, began to work with these large pieces of bamboo and um, created an instrument where he felt he could really uh, dig into the nuances that Indian vocal music was all about. And and that was the style that I um, I just fell into and uh, and loved and uh, still love today and it's become the root um, of my of my music in that sense.
0: Wow. So bansuri, maybe you can share a little bit more about the kind of history of bansuri as a Hindustani classical instrument. And from what I hear, it hasn't really been that long that it was. Considered one of the main instruments of the classical repertoire, is that correct
1: well that that's absolutely correct and um uh, yeah, I mean, what I think I was saying was that before Panolo gauche. The flute was really thought of completely as something for light, light music in India, which would be folk music, bhajans, um, spiritual music, but not Indian classical music. It, it certainly was not in the, um, ex- it wasn't accepted as an instrument that could really um, give the nuances of Indian classical music, which was really in the hands of either vocalists or the sitar sarod traditions. So Penelagosh, in a way, had to, had to break that attitude. And in some ways, uh, there were many people who didn't feel he did. But uh, flute and uh, shanai with bismillah khan, a um, similar situation, entered the arena of classical music. To, um, to many people, uh, indeed, it can um, capture the nuance uh, and to others, it can't. Much more connected to vocal music than, uh, as you know, as a sitar player, the um, the percussive nature of plucking strings is not something that was really something that Ghosh was trying to uh, emulate. Hmm. He was more into the uh, kind of sliding mir and 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 what's called gayaki, the vocal style, which of course is. You know, there are sitarists like Vilad Khansab who will say, I'm playing sitar in a Gayaki tradition. In fact, every, I think every Indian musician will say vocal music is my core and I'm using my instrument to extend vocal techniques, which is something we could, you know, that I could say more about with regard to flute. But that's um, that's kind of where it stands. And then with Basri, um things began to shift with um, the great Hadi Prashad Rasia who uh, living today is the, the certainly the most well-known uh, flutist and he adopted a style which incorporated more of the percussive aspect of the music in terms of the forms he played and I think also he had a lot of interest in western flute players and began to use double tonguing techniques that are that are second nature to a western flute player and uh, allow that to be part of his display of the music. And within the Basri world, there are kind of uh, two camps about that. I mean, there there are the uh, people that lean towards Hyder Prashad as being a more complete exponent of Indian classical music, and those that, that feel that this uh, pu- more pure vocal approach is is the um the real deal but um there's never any agreement in indian music you know uh, that in all of human <laughs> you never affairs <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> every realm has its politics yeah mm-hmm. yeah but wow thank you for sharing that i feel like a lot of people i i recently didn't really know that bansuri kind of came on a little later from Panal oh, yeah. gosh because i'm trained in the myhargarana originally and he was a student of Aladin Khansab. Um, well, that's the,
1: uh, now, now here's an irony. I mean, we're getting into more of the uh, intricacies and and inexplainable things about Indian music because Panala Ghosh was indeed a student of Aladin Khansab and is part of the Mahara tradition. But then again, so is Hari Prashad through Anacorn right. Devi. The individual
0: expression is, yeah, yeah, always going to be
1: yeah. But I feel that with um, the, the genius of Aladdin Kansab was that when you think of all of the um, students in the Maihar tradition and the diversity right. of the way they manifest the music, I mean, Nikhil Banerjee and Ravi Shankar are playing the same instrument. But uh, yes, they're coming from the same tradition. And yet each of them manifested a um, personal authenticity in the way they treated that music and the aesthetic of what they wanted to, um, work with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're touching on a really beautiful part of the music is there's always that individual expressive quality that comes through, even depending on, even if you have the same guru and, um, that's part of the living and breathing timeless qualities to me of Hindustani music, Raga music is that it's Every person will unfold it unique to their own.
1: Nature. I think that's a really, it's a really important aspect, and um, I believe a, a guru has the role of transmitting something, enlivening something, and then uh, I believe a guru also has the. Um, I, I would think that the guru would want you to find your own authentic voice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like. You you learn initially you learn as as I'm sure you know um, in the oral tradition you, you you listen and you imitate and that's that's the way we learn this music but at a certain point one has to through just the process of of um, riyaz practice and and just some kind of uh, personal ripening maturing um, one has to find one's own voice with the instrument otherwise it's a um, I mean the a lot of Indian musicians will actually use the term, they'll say well that was re- rather bookish it was bookish, yes it was correct but it was bookish, it didn't have that, you know, I want to get goosebumps when I hear you play the ga, in Gushri Todi, you know and it's got to come from your own personal integration with that as well as Inbra- as well as a tradition
0: right steve how many years have you been studying hindustani classical music for And <laughs> around uh, here or there
1: <laughs> uh i think i really started in 1971 so we're talking 51 years
0: wow and Impressive. i mean that's that's amazing and I, i'm wondering if you could attempt to kind of summarize some of the points of the things that shifted for you on the decade marks, for example, in the first 10 years, like what was something that you focused on and kind of overcame or learned? And then after 20 years and then 30, cause I'm, I'm 15 and I'm like seeing so much that yeah. happens. Like I, I shift my perspective and Great. I had a time where I was so fascinated by all the ragas and I got to learn you know they're all so enticing and beautiful and unique and now i just want to focus on one rock for a year in like really yeah yeah, deep deep into it and so this is a pretty you know extensive question but if you if you could yeah maybe look at the decade marks as i can i I really can
1: it's interesting um because um my son just turned 30 this weekend and when i wrote to him He's out in the West Coast. When I wrote to him, I said, "You know, when I was thirty, my daughter, who's obviously older, was one year old, and um, I had just been back from uh, two and a half years in India." So, and and I, I and what I wrote was that my hold on the music was so fragile. It was so fragile, and I can remember those days of waking up and feeling it's all just going to disappear. It's going to disappear in the air. You know, nothing is really tangible. Yeah, I have notes, you know, this raga is Sare re ma pa. But, but I felt so um, vulnerable to losing what had been kind of poured into me intensely in, in really only about a year and a half. I mean, it was a very short time, really, that I had with, with Swami. Um, and actually, it was the, what I'm describing was was um, when we came back from India in '72. Was before my daughter was born. That's when I really had this fragile feeling. And then a very interesting thing happened. Um, I had, um, among other ragas, I had really fallen in love with rag Bhagashri. And I was. We were living in Boston at that time, and I was just. Playing bhagashri day and night, and and I was really into my bhagashri Now, remind you, I'm alone, I'm I'm on my own, and I'm just playing bhagashri And then in '74, I went back to India, and I kind of just so excited to kind of march into my guru's music room, and you know, and, and he, well, what have you been doing? You know, I said, well, I've been playing, I've been playing bhagashri. Well, let's life for me. I started playing bhagashri, and nobody had the slightest idea what I was playing. I had, I had, tra- I had on my own transformed it into my own bhagashri. Wow! But I had, I had no reference point of what, what's the middle road? Hmm. Of you're actually playing bhagashri, or are you just messing around with that scale? Hmm. I mean, it, wow. it was like they were all, they were all going, "Oh, yes." <laughs> You know, what exactly are you doing? Wow. <laughs> or maybe I didn't say I was, I probably didn't say I was playing baghashri. I just started playing. And of course, to me, it was clear as day. And, well, yeah. <laughs> Is it this? Is it that? What's he doing? Wow. And I think it was a wonderful um, moment that I can look back on of how, how in a way um how subtle and intangible that oral tradition really is and and i think the more you study the music the more you realize how subtle it is um you don't just you know you don't just go oh yeah i get it you know in, in a western intellectual way I, oh i get it yeah i play this oh yeah, yeah i do this I, I know that raga um and that um Over the years, I guess, um, five or six core ragas that I was playing, I would put something down and a couple of years later, get back into it and hear so much more. You know, I mean, it it seemed like an unending dive into the depth of things. I mean, one wonderful anecdote is that we were playing uh, Bayrav and... I'm following my guru, Gurga and he plays the Komal Re, the flat second in the scale, and he looks up at me and says, this note is very peculiar. And I, at that time, a totally Western conceptual mind goes, oh yeah, of course, like that, you know, and just let it go with that. I think it was 20 years later that I was playing Bhairav And I played that Como Rey in a certain way, and I immediately saw him saying to me, that note is very peculiar. And I was like, wow, yeah. Yeah, it is. I couldn't quite tell you how it's peculiar, but yeah, that's it. What you just did, that's it. And that kind of thing, that kind of thing is just such a... uh, invigorating moment and I still have the moments like that yeah I have them with certain ragas where I feel that that years and years later I'm playing and I go wow that's really that's that's it with that note that that with the way these two notes are combined how this combination there's a um uh, I've been involved with uh, Buddhism for a long time, and in um, Tibetan Buddhism, we, we talk about, we explore what's called the outer inner and the um, sacred, or you could say secret, elements of teachings. And you could say that the outer element of Raga is, um, I'm playing, I'm playing Rag Bhairav and here are the notes, And the inner is to really hear um, the integration of those notes, how they're capsulized in a beautiful composition, for example. But that secret or self-secret aspect is that third one of, of, of all of a sudden the essence of a note which just stops time and space, which you can't snap your finger and have it happen. You can't figure it out and say, do this and you'll get that. But it just arises. It arises out of the, um, uh, the, 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 the state of ma- uh, some kind of presence, present moment. And that's what, um, you know, and, and of course, for the Indian music listeners, the, the rasikas, the people that know the music, this is what always gets them, vava, you know, kya Well, what, 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 what just happened? You know, well, but you know, and those are the things that I think over the course of all these years, I'm more and more just in love with, you know, entranced by, curious about. Yeah, I
0: I totally relate and just love this depth and this side of the music in, in the sense and, you know, there's a saying, like, one rag is all you need. And the way I interpret that is, is that one rag is totally infinite and you can never like, it's not like a finished piece, right? Your whole life, like we talked about, you can be finding new phrases and new places to move. And, and then the other thing that I've interpreted that as, is that if you really study one rag in great detail, then you have more access and understanding to other ones, and that's kind of been something I've interpreted from that saying. And and also, like, the old days, there are guys that were famous for just, like, one rag. Like, go yeah. hear him sing Purya Dinasheri. And um, it's just, yeah, I, I just uh, love getting to communicate about this depth of, of the music. Um, this
1: is totally true, yeah. The idea that one raga in a way you um if you study one raga in depth you're you're learning the uh, the footprint how how raga unfolds how a raga unfolds and then it is applicable to um other ones in with their own scales and their own motifs um certainly yeah and and that sense that um you might have a, would a, 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 you say, like a handle on it or a sense of, of where the energy is really flowing. And then at another moment, you might feel you can't find it. Um, there's a wonderful story that uh, Samir Chatterjee, great, great tabla player and dear, dear friend of mine, told me. He was playing um, quite often with um, the late, great Pandit Jesraj. And he was in the green room with Jasraj Ji um, before an evening concert. And, and, um, and Jasraj Ji says to Samirda, um, "What, what shall I play tonight? What shall I sing tonight? What shall I sing? And Samir says, sing rag Yaman and Jasraj, having sung for 60, 70 years With Yemen, as you know, is like a bulwark of the repertoire. He looks at Samirji and says, I don't have a grip on Yemen at this moment. Wow. (laughs) It's like, wow. Yeah.
0: There's some perspective, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful. Mm. (laughs) Wow. Well, we're talking about Raga and kind of this depth and every raga has a time of day or, or season for our listeners here. And, you know, as I've learned, my teachers haven't really explained that science, but they affirm it and they, they stand by it. And I've done my some of my own research on the prahars, which are these eight divisions of the day, and a way that kind of ascribes a rag to its time of day but when i look at that in in the system there you know there are al- always some some discrepancies and things and i feel that there's something more intuitive going on behind all of this that really is mm. something almost intangible that is is realized on a whole other level than even the the scientific explanations and i'm just curious kind of how you feel about ragas and their connections with time of day and and how that was taught to you, and and what it feels like to you.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful topic to explore. I think my approach to it has been is really that that this music, Indian classical music, which is something that evolved out of um, what we know as nada yoga, the yoga of sound. Um, it's a music which uh, comes from a culture that was completely connected with nature, it was really in tune with nature, in tune with the quality of light of different times of day, in tune with the rainy season. So that, so that music became a, a vehicle to connect with a different time of uh, a different time of day, and of course, if we think about um, uh, living in a, a climate like India, where indoor/outdoor is is a lot more fluid than in in North America, certainly where I live, you know, um, or or when we use electric lights at night, if it if it's sunset, there's nothing other than the natural world. Your connection to that sunset to the... Um, and um, sunset's a beautiful example because on the equator, as I think most people know, um, sunset occurs much faster than it does in the uh, hemispheres f- further away from the equator, both in the north and south. So twilight in India is this rush of colors. It's this rush of colors. It's this... Um, Bardo, You know, it's this in-between space between light and dark or dark and light. It's um, the experience of if you take a nap and wake up during that time for a split second, you don't know. Is it getting lighter? Is it getting darker? And what do they do with the music? You have a raga like Marwa or Shri. You have these ragas that are unstable, have some kind of floating quality. They're not clearly black or white this or that there are this in-between state I mean that's the perfect example of where music evolved which reflected this um, state in the natural world so I, I I embrace it from that point of view and um, and uh, you know and and it kind of just comes about intuitively I sit in the morning I play I mean, that happens to be my way of beginning my morning, um, or bairagi, you know. So I try, in a way, I try to really, um, I, I wouldn't say try, I just sort of intuitively uh, go along with the um, the game plan. You know, late afternoon, um, if I sit down and play my flute, particularly if I'm outdoors, I have this beautiful outdoor space to play where I look over a river and the water reflect the trees reflect in the water and um, something about four or five in the afternoon Madhavanti Madhukans Bimplashri they just seem right they just seem right to me earlier in the morning Todi it just so so I'm really um, kind of embracing this tradition and and didn't get I mean I've had different gurus talk about it, but um I think I'm more influenced personally with my sense of um of a Buddhist sense of sort of sacred world and presence. Mm.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I I feel that there's something kind of deeply intuitive there and it's it's nice to talk about that with other musicians that are, you know, engaged in this music and yeah. um thank you for sharing that. Well wow.
1: It's wonderful to play Lalit at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. I've had fabulous opportunities in India to play at all-night festivals and play at that time, or to hear people sing that. I used to, I mean, I was when I was in India, Amir, the great Amya Khansab was alive, and he was famous for his Lalit at 4.30, and, you know, and you'd be at these all-night concerts, which is another thing that's interesting because the, the sense of um, staying up all night to hear music and hearing music at a time of day when it really is to be played is like a, um, it's a meditative experience. It's a sense of of being, you know, falling asleep, nodding out or something like that and then waking up into this world and to hear him sing that music at that time is just remarkable.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Now, as you became more immersed in the study of Bansuri and, and you're learning more, um, what were your first steps of entering the performing world as a Hindustani Bansuri player like? Where did you kind of find your, your way to um, begin expressing this music on the stage?
1: <laughs> I would say looking back that I, w- I was tremendously um, t- just stepping forward rather clueless. You know, I mean, I got a lot of encouragement from people to play. And um, I think it was perhaps because, um, and I think a lot of this came from the jazz background I had, that there was something about just sort of, you know, like I, I could catch the vibe of raga. I really did not know all that much when I found myself playing and I'm kind of, I can think of certain circumstances where I'm almost embarrassed that I was playing before people. But for the most part, I got a lot of encouragement from, from Indian listeners, both in India and in the States. And then, and then particularly, I guess, starting in the 90s, um, so I've been playing 20 years, uh, I started going to India quite frequently for... Usually um, from a month to six weeks every winter, and um, with the um, support of a number of of Indian musicians and music critics, got invited to play in these festivals um, and play concerts for people. And um, I think a lot of it was that 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 a lot of those people that su- were supportive were just very. Um, Pleased that that someone from the West, someone from the kind of land of milk and honey, wanted to come to India and study this music seriously, you know. And there was just tremendous appreciation for that. So so that that was kind of an entryway um, that that led me into it. I've I've never been under the. I mean, I'm I'm aware when I hear some people that are in their twenties. How much they know and how much more there is to learn and what I don't know, I'm really aware of all of that, you know, But at this point, I kind of feel that um, I can show up and play something. Uh, I can play it from my heart. I can play it from my heart, and this is the way I play it. And uh, I know it's um, it's it, I know it's still connected to a tradition and yet, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, I can really hear the jazz in your, in your playing. It's, um, I mean, the, the depth of, there's there's no end to it, what one could study and, and take further.
0: So when you were, you know, you're hearing Coltrane and, you know, probably guys like Pharaoh Sanders and this kind of more free India-influenced jazz, and did that, shift your idea of what music could be or what it what you thought it was or did you sense that devotion as much as before you you kind of stepped into hindustani tradition and study was that do you feel like you were really seeing that um that spark of what we were talking about as kind of these intangible parts of a raga was that something that you felt from you know coltrane's improvisations and how how do those two
1: relate? It's kind of interesting. I'm not sure. I really thought. I'm not sure. I really thought about it that much. Um, I think what I began, what I began to realize was that the jazz music that I loved, which was predominantly the voice of these African American musicians, it just wasn't my. It wasn't my music. I, I played it, but it wasn't. It just wasn't my music. It was as simple as that. I listened to Eric Dolphy. I mean, I you know I really n- know that era of jazz very very well, and I love listening to people who really play it thoroughly. But uh, for some reason, um, I stumbled onto something in India that I felt was more um, true to who I was, who I am and um and as much as I can um, hold on to that the more the more honest things are i 'm actually playing a little um, program this weekend it 's been wonderful to have these outdoor events where people can actually come and and i 'm playing with a fine jazz guitar player and drummer and it 's kind of a it 's kind of a jazz setting and I was just telling a friend earlier today that for me my task when i'm in that situation is to not get drawn into trying to play like a jazz player because that's not what i do well but to find a way to bring into that music this voice that's coming from that's coming from in, from indian music hmm. wow. and sometimes that's a challenge because it's very easy to get to get kind of swept into you know, all of a sudden, I'm just going You know, and it—that's it, not what I should be doing.
0: Hmm. <laughs> wow. So when you when you found raga music and Hindustani music, did you kind of ease off on you know practicing jazz music as much?
1: Oh, oh totally. Okay. Totally. No, no, I've never
0: really full back. You were full in. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I've had, I've had some wonderful opportunities to play with people that are, um, you know, just masters in the jazz world. I I played with Jack Dejeanette. Yeah. Great. Greatest jazz drummer alive, um, two years. But, but again, my role and my task and where I succeeded, and also where I, I couldn't quite succeed, was in bringing to him something that was of this authentic Indian world music aesthetic. You know, and and I can hear where it worked, and I can hear where um, it it fell short because I couldn't um, either find, I couldn't find that voice in certain situations, you know,
0: Hmm.
1: and it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing. And I'm interested, I'm interested in that. I'm very interested in that. It's kind of a, it's been an important part of um, the musical opportunities I've found myself in to be able to work with that. Uh, I'm certainly not exclusively playing Indian classical music by any means.
0: Hmm. And a question I've been asking: this term "world music." Yeah, what, is, what, term. Is, what does that mean to you? How do you interpret the, the term "world music"? What, what does it mean to you?
1: That's funny. Somebody there was a joke a number of years ago that somebody asked somebody in Ethiopia, "What's world music?" And they said, "James Brown." <laughs> you know, so, um, I mean, it's a, it's a very loose genre, but I think that it is the expansion that took place most recently um, starting with the in the 60s and 70s where um, we incorporated music other than the european and african american tradition as it was with jazz uh, and began to really explore other musics and and in a way from a from a eurocentric perspective like with Western classical music, there were a number, number of bursts of world music. Um, you know, uh, Be- uh, Beethoven was the first um, musician to use um, Turkish symbols, hmm. Turkish music. Debussy heard Gamelan at the uh, Paris World's Fair in the 1890s, and that totally became a, um, a, a, a palette tapestry of his. So so there are numerous times that this has really happened. The big difference was that in the 60s, we had recordings. We had uh, wonderful um, anthologies by Nonesuch Recordings and the UNESCO series of music from all over the world. And both Western classical composers and jazz musicians who heard those couldn't help but be influenced by it and and that led to the first um you know you could say explorations with this and and things things you know the success is um almost that's irrelevant you know you you uh, you step out and try something it might not work but but the the gates opened you know the world is multicultural it's, um, it's rich with all these things and at the same time I can hear the voice of a lot of people that would say well you know Indian classical music is kind of like a pure form and if you begin to mess with it uh, you're just going to dilute the, um, that secret sacred element and I can, I can hear the truth in that as well so I think the two kind of exist side by side there's situations where you can explore something you can stretch out um, uh, a lot of what's in the so called new age genre is using Indian music in a, in a kind of um, a soft bud light kind of way yeah. and some of it is quite beautiful you know, some of it is quite beautiful. Uh, who's to say? But uh, there is also a truth that um, a raga, holding, cradling, a classical raga, uh, is is unique. And and when it's watered down, when chords are added to it, um, all kinds of things that we've heard, it just ain't the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Simple as that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So you 're on tour, and you 've got a performance, and you only have a half hour to practice what What, what would you practice <laughs> What do you play when you're when you have that limited time
1: and um, okay. um, I would reframe it and say you've spent the last two hours arranging the stage and the sounds and schlepping the sound system and uh, there's a cable that doesn't work and you're, you're trying to, and you hate the sound that you're getting and then you have to play. What do you play? <laughs> I think, I think that's, more, that's more an experience I can really relate to. Uh, you know, um, at, at best, um, you take a deep breath and center yourself in a contemplative state and um, in a way embrace the um, uh, the dharmakaya the emptiness and that sound is something's going to arise from that mm. and i think that i i can recall often experience where i'll start playing and i'll feel oh my god nothing's happening you know is nothing's happening i'm not You know, and and I think the most important thing to do is not jump,
0: Hmm.
1: not jump and and try to. uh, And you hear this in a lot of people's music where where they just want to they're afraid they're going to lose your attention and they start flailing around right away Hmm. Um, rather than just holding steady and and believing that trusting, trusting that some. Something will come out of that steadiness, and will it'll that'll be the real thing, rather than oh, I just started prancing around and you know running through hoops. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's definitely the one of the challenging parts of performing.
1: I mean, I'm a little jealous of of you uh, guys who can spend um, a fair amount of time tuning. Mm. You know, you can spend <laughs> ten minutes. You know, sometimes the audience goes, "Come on already!" But, but you, but your tuning is more than tuning the instrument. You're tuning your mind as well, mm. and and this is very different with the flute, where um, if you haven't had a chance to really play in the green room, you've got a, you've got you got to really either try, either find it on the spot or be willing to um, be patient with finding it.
0: That. That gives me a a broader perspective of the tuning. I I appreciate that. I'm I'm going to see that as as an opportunity now. Hmm. Well, we're always jealous of the travel-friendly qualities of a flute, but I guess everybody's got their (laughs) up and down (laughs) with their chosen instrument. Right, right. (laughs) Well, you know, the world's going through a lot right now. And, you know, we're in interesting times. And I'm just maybe for our listeners, if you can share what, what is really the role and potential of music right now for oh for people and for even maybe for your own self. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of tours and performances have been canceled. And, you know, you are still accessing music and How can you kind of share some of that inspiration um, with the broader world and and our listeners?
1: I believe that music and I would say the arts in general are vital, absolutely vital to the well-being of um, us all and to this fragile planet that we live on. And that music has the possibility of individually synchronizing our mind and our heart, our mind and our body, and on a um, on a social level, um, offering something which cuts the aggression of speediness, a sense of uh, what's going to happen next. A um, Music has that ability to allow you to rest in your true nature. And that true nature is not the world of hope and fear. It gives us a moment of sanity. And so much of the um, energy that we're being bombarded with, I mean, we saw... Last we saw the man who is leading this country politically just ranting, like a spoiled child. Anything that um, I feel that my if I if I have a if I have a goal if I have a desire if I have a mission, it's to play music which allows people to just breathe feel their own goodness, and be able to extend that goodness out to others. Feel that we are more connected than we are different. The great um, composer and uh, conductor Lenny Bernstein made a comment um, during World War II, where he said that um, our response to violence will be to play music more more uh, more passionately, more honestly, and with more integrity than ever. And that these things actually do work. They they, they really work on people. I, I've had the satisfaction of, of, of knowing it on a personal level when, when someone will just say, wow, you know, I just... You played something and I just stopped my... It stopped my fear. It stopped my anxiety. Uh, it allowed me to just breathe and and feel the warmth of this day, whatever. Um, so that's my aspiration with music.
0: Well, it's been just such a pleasure, Steve, going into such deep topics about music and life. And I feel uh, kind of a breath of inspiration here as with your... Um, Your final thoughts. And I'm also, I'd love to share with our listeners how they can find more of of your
1: music and your work. I have a website, um, stevegorn.com. And on the website, there are there are actually um, well there 's quite a few uh, video clips that you can just click on and hear a variety of things, um, some Indian classical music it 's rather old actually i 've been lazy about updating that, but it also includes a number of interesting um, things in this world music genre and then there are some um, CDs, those relics of the other another era that are available quite a few of them i think online and um, and there are some physical copies around is there a
0: a project that you are currently working on that um Mm. we can look forward to
1: i've got a talk I've i've got a talk on my website which people might find interesting it's called the transformative power of music and it's a it's an abbreviated version of a talk I've been giving at universities for the last 10 or so years, where I really explore this notion that I mentioned before of the power of music, what music is as a vehicle for transformation on the personal and on the social level. And um, it's about a 20-minute piece where I speak about that for a bit and then talk about how that works for me when I play
0: yeah i i watched that one and yeah i recommend that to any listener who wants to kind of hear more about some of the things we talked about um you know this power of a raga what is it what's really happening and um steve kind of demonstrates as he's playing his bansuri different qualities of how a raga unfolds and in just music in a broader context of you know what it's here to, to serve and and do so um Wow. Well, I, I just thank you for your sharing and your devotion to, to music. Uh, enjoy that beautiful fall day there, and uh, wow. I hope one day we can sit with uh, instruments again.
1: I know. We only had that brief minute there at Omega, at um, uh, Bhakti Fest yes yeah. god
0: willing yeah. and it's it's been nice to i've been connecting with artists in this kind of interview format and it's different than you know, i miss sitting with my instrument but this is just a very um satisfying way to to yeah. keep that inspiration and yeah and uh connection so i'm grateful for just for all the great artists and musicians out there who are continuing to to spread light with with their work in the world and uh steve it's been awesome having you
1: well, thank you, Will. Thank you so much for doing this, not only with me, but, but for really offering a whole series of these um, to people. Because in a way, I, I've always felt like a, a dialogue, conversational approach um, really allows someone to speak, you know, reflect on, on what's going on, and then the questions really keep things moving nicely. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thank you once again for tuning in. Your support is much appreciated. Please consider taking just a moment to write a review and to like and subscribe to the World Music Podcast. It'll really help us reach more listeners. And I'd like to take a moment to share one of my offerings. Uh, In this past year, I've created an online course that is called Raga for All Instruments. And the vision of this course is to share the uh, beauty of raga music from the Hindustani tradition with musicians who maybe come from a different background and want to go deeper into these amazing raga melodies. Uh, This course is taught in the key of C, and it's aimed really for, for any musician on any instrument or vocalist, uh, with a desire to have a deeper understanding of this amazing music. You can find more about this course by visiting my website, willmarshmusic.com. You'll see the link there for the online course. And bear in mind that the first four videos of the course are free, so you can go ahead and dive in and check them out and uh, start your journey into raga music. Thank you so much and see you on the next episode.